G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. Life, culture and current events from a biblical perspective. 2020 with Neil Johnson on Vision. Time flies by, doesn't it? And 12 months have passed already since the Taliban seized power in the Afghan capital, Kabul. And as you may recall, when the Afghan armed forces collapsed, as allied forces withdrew, thousands of Christians fled and many were evacuated by Christian aid groups. You might even recall conversations about Christian organizations that are interested in serving the persecuted church, ways that they've had to have campaigns to get Christians out. Well, at that time, Afghanistan's underground church was estimated to comprise around 10,000 converts. But thousands of Christians stayed, including hundreds of faithful Afghan pastors who chose to remain as salt and light, bearers of grace and truth. Well, some insights today into developments, disturbing developments in Afghanistan. Elizabeth Kendall is a religious liberty analyst and advocate for the persecuted church, a former principal researcher for the World Evangelical Alliance Religious Liberty Commission. Elizabeth's the author of a couple of books. We'll mention those shortly. But Elizabeth Kendall, a special welcome back to 2020. And thank you for having me again, Neil. Isn't it funny uh, the way the media cycles work? And if no one's talking about Afghanistan, we assume that everything's gone back to normal and everything's good. Uh, But it's not so good. I wonder whether we might start with a a little recap on some things that happened just over a year ago, Elizabeth. Uh, Challenging times for the whole world with what happened in Afghanistan. Oh, absolutely. Well, just over a year ago now, so on the 15th of um, August 2021, uh, the Taliban, Afghan Taliban, came into, stormed into Kabul and seized power in Kabul uh, without really having to to fight. Now, before that happened, they'd already captured all the provincial capitals just in the weeks prior. So as as the US was withdrawing, and as the time was approaching for the U.S. to really leave, the uh, the Taliban, which had controlled the rural areas, and, you know, like more than 70% of the country for, for years, maybe even for more than a decade, uh, they just moved into the provincial capitals and they captured them. And more often than not, the, the Afghan army just collapsed. It, it was very similar to what happened in Iraq with Saddam's army, uh, not Saddam's army, with the, uh, with the army when, when ISIS uh, moved up into Mosul and, and the, the whole army just collapsed and ISIS took over Mosul. It's the same sort of thing. You have a young armed forces made up of young people often who have no real desire to fight or, or to, especially not to fight their own you know, Afghan flesh and blood, their own Muslim brothers, their own Afghan brothers. But they're there because it's the only way to earn an income in Afghanistan. It's either that or starve to death. 
And so the army basically just uh, collapsed uh, when the when the Taliban came into the provincial capitals, and then when it came into Kabul. And of course, when they came into Kabul, one of their big biggest uh, biggest coups they scored was to have the Bagram Air Base just surrendered to them. Uh, now the Bagram Air Base is worth you know billions of dollars. And along with uh, getting access to the whole base, they they basically inherited everything that the Americans left behind. Something like 700 military trucks, you know, armored trucks, more than 300 armored Humvees, dozens of other armored vehicles and artillery systems, and the Bagram Air Base's maximum security prison. And once they had that, they then released all the prisoners. Now, this is interesting, Elizabeth, because the prisoners that were being held in Afghanistan, uh, many of those uh, were uh, hardened Islamic militants, and uh, they threw the doors open and let them out. They did, and they didn't even judge between them, which is very, very interesting. So they released Afghan Taliban, Pakistani Taliban, who we know they're allied to, and Al-Qaeda, who we know that the Afghan Taliban is allied to Al-Qaeda. They also released Islamic State militants, even though they're mortal enemies of one another. About about 5,000 prisoners were released, and about 2,300 of those were battle-hardened Islamic militants, and some of them were senior commanders with these terrorist organisations. So they were just out. Uh, and And the biggest thing, you know, is... Not even just that they were released, but the the, the great sense of victory that uh, that Islamists all and jihadists all over the world have felt at that moment. In fact, in just the months following the collapse, the seizure of Kabul, ten Islamic organisations in Pakistan merged with the Pakistani Taliban. So that just goes to show how. Militant groups have said, oh, this, we're on a winner here. They joined up and those groups have just exploded. And, you know, for myself, I watch, you know, I watch Islamic activity, um, Islamic publications and Islamic uh, intelligence and Twitter and not Twitter, um, you know, chatter as it's reported by various observers. And uh, we're, we're just going to see a whole new wave, I believe, of Islamic terrorism in the years to come. When we think of a wave of Islamic terrorism, I've noticed just of recent times the headlines are more and more about all sorts of connected uh, issues, Uh, even Salman Rushdie being attacked uh, just last week. Uh, These sorts of things, they have an echo of what happens when there is this sort of unrest and this growing uh, presence and, uh, and and like a flexing of muscles. Any thoughts around the fact that we're seeing a lot more in the headlines? Well, I think that I think that there has been a real uh, uh, wind into the sails of the Islamic jihadists. You know, Al Qaeda has always maintained that the battle, the Islam's battle, is a long war. So that concept of a long war of attrition is Al-Qaeda's essentially uh, their their motto. It's very different to Islamic State, which just says, we're going to go out and get it now. (laughs) Allah has promised us success, let's go and grab it. But Al-Qaeda has always maintained there has to be a long war of attrition until the West is no longer 
willing or able to fight us. Only then can we take control and have our caliphate and get what we want. And basically that's what they've achieved in Afghanistan through, you know, like through 20 years at least of just patient plugging away, a war of attrition until America has withdrawn. And that is the, that is the foundational sort of thinking of all what we would call the resistance forces. So uh, in my um, After Saturday Comes Sunday book, we, I talk about the axis of resistance. This is the Iran-led uh, axis that is about resisting, uh, resisting all Western and Christian and Jewish influence in the Middle East, uh, never has alliances with America or anything like that, so the axis of resistance, uh, really headed up by Iran, their view is that you must completely degrade the opposition until they can no longer fight. And then you drive them out. And uh, al-Qaeda is part of that. Even though al-Qaeda is Sunni and Iran is Shiite, al-Qaeda is part of that resistance. And that's all part of that thinking. And this has been an incredible victory. And we're seeing, or I'm certainly seeing an uptick in jihadist activity uh, all over the world, and, and even even something like the attack on Salman Rushdie, I have no doubt that that came from you know like the the wind in the sails of that particular Islamist who committed that attack. He said he probably thought to his, himself, "We're on a roll here," and he stepped up. Interesting, as you say, where you've got the Shias and the Sunnis, uh, those two sects within Islam, but they are united. I mean, they hate each other, but they are united together when there is a common enemy, the infidels. Uh, and we might say the people of the West, the people of the book. Uh, there's, a, there's a uniting there. And so while they put aside their fighting against each other because there's a common enemy they see. Well, that's right. So, so the uh, the Sunnis and the Shiites, who all see themselves as part of this resistance against the West, uh, yes, they are united on that, whether they're Sunni or Shiite. So you've got Iran, you've got Hezbollah, and you've got Al Qaeda, and you've got Hamas and Islamic Jihad in in the uh, Palestinian territories, and they're all aligned together as resistance forces. Uh, and this makes them uh, or a mortal enemy of countries like or re- regimes like Saudi Arabia that has allowed America to put bases on their territory and is aligned with America, uh, you know, and receives weapons from America and brokers and has talks with America. So it's a the Muslim world is actually much more fractured than people realise. There's you know. There's a split between the pro and anti-Muslim government groups, between the pro and anti-resistance groups, and Islamic State sort of stands apart as being pretty well against everything. So it's, it, the thing that makes it very different is it's Islamic State is what's known as taqfiri. That is that they basically kill everyone who doesn't agree with them, and that includes especially uh, Shiites. So they are incredibly hostile towards Shiites. And this is one thing we've seen in um, Afghanistan recently. Islamic State in Chorasan province, and Chorasan is a, like a greater Afghanistan. Well, Islamic State in Chorasan province has issued a fatwa 
calling for attacks on uh, places of worship belonging to Jews and Christians and Hindus and Shiites. And while the Christians are underground, um, we've seen a massive attack uh, in Kabul already on Shiite mosques in Kabul. And I, I expect things are going to get a lot worse yet. Life, culture and current events from a biblical perspective. This is 2020 with Neil Johnson on Vision Christian Radio. Our talkback line open on 1-800-316-316. Elizabeth Kendall is our guest, religious liberty analyst and advocate for the persecuted church. Elizabeth, with the fall of Kabul, uh, there were around 10,000 Christians who were in Afghanistan before that. What has been the upshot? What's been the consequence of the fall of Afghanistan to the Taliban, to the Christian community in Afghanistan? Well, the, you know, in, in all reality, the Taliban has actually controlled much of the countryside of Afghanistan for a long time. <clears throat> and and uh, Christians have always been an underground church in Afghanistan. So... It's not as if the whole world changed overnight. Uh, the Chris, when Christy Wilson, an American missionary who was born and raised in Iran to missionary parents in Iran, he got a job teaching English in Kabul in 1950. And when he went into Kabul, into Afghanistan, then there were no known Christians, none. So, and so the, the entire, like, 70-year history, the modern history of Christianity in Afghanistan in this modern era has been one of persecution, of, of, of converts being killed, of, you know, being, being arrested and tortured and then driven out of the country. So this has always been the way it's been. You know, with the Taliban now in power, of course, things are a prob- a more dangerous than ever. There's no doubt about that, but it's always been, it's always been dangerous. And, as, as A groups point out, the Christians have learned uh, how to survive as an entirely um, underground church. So they use VPNs, you know, protected uh, virtual private networks to give them a secure connection over the internet that can't be traced. And they have to go on trust, really, that they just talk to people that they can trust. When they do gather, if believers ever can gather together, it will be in very small groups. Uh, in little safe spaces, in nondescript, dusty streets. And uh, they just have to be really, really careful. And, of course, that just continues probably up from, you know, uh, you know, like 90 degrees to 95 degrees now. So it's just, it's just got worse. But they've lived like this always. And the, the prayer point that I, I put into my last prayer bulletin on, on Afghanistan was that they would be hidden under the shadow of, of God's wings, that they simply would not be seen, um, that, that, the, that the Taliban, who is often, you know, maybe on the... I don't know that they're out hunting Christians, but I tell you what, if they find one, they'll kill one. They'll kill them. There's no doubt about that. I think they're probably a bit too busy with other things to go out hunting them, but I'm pretty sure that if they find one, they will kill them. They won't think twice about it. So everyone's having to be very careful, and yet the most amazing thing is 
that uh, the church is still growing, and uh, which is just amazing. So even though maybe half the church has left the country, um, hundreds of Afghan pastors, most of whom became Christians outside of the country. So they're mostly people who fled the country because of violence, you know, uh, the war between uh, like American and Afghan forces and the Taliban, you know, and poverty and hunger. They've fled the country. They've ended up in a refugee camp in Pakistan, maybe. They've heard the gospel there. Many, many Afghans have become Christians in Pakistan. And then they've gone back. They've gone back to be, as you said, light and salt and bearers of grace and truth. And the courage just blows my mind, you know. The courage just blows my mind. And they've gone back to lead these small secret house churches and they witness and they meet with families and they encourage them and they they just are helpful. They are giving, bringing help. They are bringing hope. And we need to cover them with our prayers and pray that God will keep them essentially like invisible to the enemy. Elizabeth, there's some different attitudes, aren't there, even in organisations that support the persecuted church? Because not everybody thinks that, you know, somehow or other, if you're in a dangerous situation, you ought to stay there. Some people think they need to be rescued out of there. But I know that there are some wonderful organisations that support the persecuted church who say what we need to do is resource those believers so that they can survive there so that there isn't a diminishing remnant but there's actually a growing church within those persecuted contexts different ways to think about how you might be a supporter of the persecuted church uh, yes and I think every single Afghan Christian and particularly if they're in a family with children they have to make their own decision they have to come to the Lord and make their own decision. And some will flee and give their families a better life somewhere else and some will stay because they believe God is calling them to stay. And both choices are equally valid, are absolutely equally valid. The only choice that I, I have no regard for is, and it happens, I'm afraid to say, is when some people say, well, you know, I'll... Um, I'll, uh, I'll um, well, I don't know how to, what words to use. I'll compromise myself and I'll maybe even, you know, cuddle up to the Taliban and save myself some persecution, maybe even become an informant and save myself. I think you're, you're better to get out if you think you could end up in that sort of situation. But, you know, there are pastors there who know that they might die. I'd just like to read you this beautiful little quote from one of the organizations that supports the underground church in Afghanistan. And of course, if you can support the underground church in Afghanistan, like I know many groups do, I know Voice of the Martyrs in Australia is supporting underground churches in Afghanistan, then you are helping them not just survive and keep the light burning in the country, you are helping them help others, which becomes a witness. And uh, anyway, this, this underground pastor told Global Catalytic Ministries, uh, he says, um, oh, oh, he says, uh, hang on, no, I've come on the wrong quote. Lost your spot. He says, uh, today, yeah. here, sorry. That's all right. No, he you says, keep uh, He says, today I went to visit some families. In one home, half of them are believers and half of them are not. It has been very special. 
When they see me, they are so happy and grateful that I have not left them. I know this is the light of Jesus they are responding to. That is what I hear the most when I go to visit people, that my presence gives them hope. And I know that this is the light of God. God works in supernatural miracles, signs and wonders in this part of the world often. But what I am seeing today is more of a natural kind of miracle where he is touching the hearts of people. From what I am seeing on the streets, I do think things are getting worse, but it's a very special time, and I think the church here will explode in growth. So as we give to support the church, we are helping the church just not only exist in Afghanistan, but grow. It's really important to do. But Elizabeth Kendall, as we enlarge this part of our conversation, let us in on some of the different groups that are making up Afghanistan today because some are more open to the Christian gospel than others. And as you say, it's a very difficult situation. But take us into some insights into some of the differences in the groups within Afghanistan. Yes, Afghanistan is not just one sort of homogenous uh one sort of homogenous country, you know, the Afghans, as if they're all the same. And I think we get that impression pretty much from the news because the main the main uh, ethnic group in Afghanistan is the Pashtun. And the Pashtun comprise about 40% of Afghanistan, uh, just the one tribe, and they, they dominate all the, um, the east and the south um, the, and, and the large swathes of north, northwest Pakistan as well. And they dominate all, all the political structures as, as well. So they, they dominate uh, power in Afghanistan. So we tend to constantly see these images of Kabul and of Pashtuns. And probably that's probably the most difficult group to reach. But there still are believers uh, amongst the Pashtuns, especially those who have um, uh, who have come across the Lord outside of Afghanistan and then come back. But there's lots of other groups. You know, Afghanistan is a landlocked country. And up in the north, you've got Tajiks and Uzbeks and Turkmen. And, of course, they're all Muslims too, but they're, they're different. And it's, they're not the same as, as the Pashtuns. They're, it's often... Their Islam is often less radicalized. They've been less impacted by the Taliban and by, by the relationship with, Af- with Pakistan. Then you've also got the Hazara, and the Hazara have links with Iran, and the Hazara are essentially Persians. They speak Dari, which, which is Persian. It's Farsi, and Dari is basically um, Afghan-Persian. Now, if you, you think about what you know, about what God is doing amongst Persians, not just in Iran even, but around the world. So Persians in Australia, Persians in America, Persians in Southeast Asia, um, the Persian diaspora, and, and in Iran. I mean, the, the, the Iranian church is the fastest growing church in the world. And it's really interesting that in, in Afghanistan, in Afghanistan sort of center and west, you've got this group of, um, of Persians. They're Shiites, so they're despised by the, um, by the Sunnis. They're despised especially by Islamic State. 
they're despised by the Pashtuns because they're Persians. You know, there's often, it's like the, it's the same sort of uh, racial thing that Arabs and Persians have, you know, between each other. You've got the Pashtuns and the Persians. But when, when the Taliban fell and when Herat and the Western regions, which is all part of the old Silk Road, uh, when that fell to the Taliban, uh, Persians uh, reached out, uh, Afghan Persians, the Hazara, reached out to the uh, Heart for Iran uh, missionary organisation that is uh, bringing gospel, gospel messages and helping Persian speakers. All of a sudden they were being contacted by large numbers of Dari-speaking Hazara, like Persian Afghans. So all of a sudden, it's like it's like the the Taliban came in and closed the door of freedom, and at the same time that they did that, God opened this window between the Hazara and the Persians in Iran and the Christian Persians in Iran, and this connection was made. And Heart for Iran, a ministry that that ministers to and serves the Persian Church, found that they were being they were getting contacted by Hazaras uh, in number. Uh, many were just desperate. They were they were desperate for help, uh, desperate for advice, desperate for aid, and many actually were asking, "Tell us about Jesus." So it's just phenomenal. This is something. This is what something that God is doing in our day amongst Persians, and people don't realize the degree to which that reaches into Western Afghanistan. And this is the per the the Hazara are known to be the ethnic group in Afghanistan most open to the gospel, and it's like the fall of the country to the Taliban has just. It's just like set off a little bit of an explosion there. And now Heart for Iran has actually given birth to a new ministry, Heart for Afghanistan. And it's all being enabled by this common Persian language. And God is doing something amazing in our day, even in the midst of all this horror. We might say wow to all of that, uh, trying to understand the way those sorts of movements happen between peoples. And we're talking about uh, a group that is based in Persian Iran and uh, the influence that is coming into Afghanistan from there, uh, given that there are people who are responding to the gospel. Now, do these groups, and you mentioned a whole lot of different groups within Afghanistan, uh, do they all like the fact that the Taliban are in charge? Uh, obviously, with that recent bombing of a mosque uh, in uh, Afghanistan that was uh, reported widely in the headlines, uh, the groups within Afghanistan don't like each other. Is there is there all sorts of tensions and movements to overthrow the Taliban? Do you know anything about that sort of thing, uh, Elizabeth? Well, from what I can tell, all the groups hate the Taliban. Right. <laughs> so the Taliban really is the the Taliban is a Pashtun movement. That has been so. It's very ethnic. It has been um, radicalized massively through the uh, through the Afghan jihad uh, and through Pakistan. If you ever look at a if you look at a map, and I think I've got one on my last prayer bulletin, a map of the, where the Pashtun live, uh, the the what's called the um, oh 
the, 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 the border, the Afghan-Pakistan border, runs right up, right up through the middle of the Pashtun lands. So the British made a decision to divide the Pashtun, and the bulk of them are in Afghanistan, where they are the largest group, and then there's a, a large group, but a minority, inside Pakistan. And both the, the Pashtuns and the Afghan government and the Taliban uh, and Al-Qaeda, none of them recognise the Durand line. None of them recognise the border. So we're going to see a lot of fighting on the border. But because it's such an ethnic group and because it's so radicalised, there's a lot of racial and religious hatred involved. So the, like the, the Tajuks, the, the Uzbeks and the Turkmen and the Hazaras, they're all... They're all not happy with this. Uh, they would really like a representative democracy and, uh, um, and they would like a Muslim state. I've no doubt about that. But they would like more of a representative democracy and one that's not as radical. The trouble is the Taliban is ruthless and it's armed to the teeth and it's armed to the teeth now more than it has ever been. More than it's ever been because now they're in control of all of that military hardware that was abandoned uh, when the Allied forces uh, quit Afghanistan. Uh, Let's talk about Pakistan because it's a neighbour and uh, there's some big challenging things going on in Pakistan as well. And I guess uh, there are some deepening situations. If we're talking about Afghanistan, things have been deepening in Pakistan too. Yes, well, you see, the thing is, Um, you've got two issues. One is the Taliban. So you've got the Afghan Taliban and the Pakistani Taliban. Now, I mentioned earlier in our talk that 10 militia, 10 militant groups joined together with with the Pakistani Taliban after the fall of Kabul. So it has grown extraordinarily just in the last 12 months because there's this feeling that, oh, right, the Taliban is now rising, you know, Taliban rising. And the Afghan Taliban and the Pakistani Taliban have always cooperated with each other. Now, as I said, it's a Pashtun movement, so it exists on both sides of the border, right? And the other problem you've got, apart from the Taliban, is... Islamic State, ISIS, which doesn't recognize any borders anyway. It's a transnational organization that just doesn't recognize any borders, wants a global, global caliphate. And it is based on the Afghan-Pakistan border inside eastern Afghanistan, but it's competing for that territory. Now, there have been attacks on Christians in Pakistan already, fatal attacks, and one just, uh, just recently uh, where uh, that I believe was the Pakistani Taliban and one a couple of months earlier that I'm convinced was Islamic State. So they've got both. But if you think about uh, the, the fatwa I mentioned, right? So on the 3rd of August, uh, Islamic State Chursan province, which is the greater Afghanistan, they issued an 18-page uh, fatwa language fatwa. So that's a legal order from the Islamic clerics and, and, and scholars. And it says that all, uh, they call them mosques of dissent, right? So places of worship where the, that are not aligned with, with 
with Islamic State, sort of supposedly pure Islam, they must be attacked. So this is an, this is an order to attack and destroy Christian, Jewish, Hindu and Shiite places of worship. And as I pointed out, we've already seen attack, multiple attacks on Shiite places of worship in Kabul. Now, while the church in Afghanistan is underground, the church in Pakistan is not. As part of the British Empire, British India, the churches in Pakistan are very much above ground. They, are, they have cathedrals on Main Street. You have a look at the image of the beautiful, you know, uh, All Saints Cathedral in Peshawar that was attacked by the Pakistani Taliban, you know, uh, some years ago. It's just a big white cathedral on the main road, no fences, no gates, open to people. It's just like a, a, a bullseye for an organisation like, like Islamic State. They are, they are extremely vulnerable. The Christians of Pakistan are not an underground church. They are exposed, they are vulnerable. They live in colonies. So they're not even just in, in, in like houses dotted around in secret. They live together in colonies for their own protection but I fear that, you know, if they were to be attacked by either one of those groups, the Pakistani Taliban or IS, you could wipe out a colony in the blink of an eye or do massive damage in the blink of an eye. It's a really serious situation. So the Christians could find themselves, or really already are, like the meat in the sandwich. There are, there are tensions that are coming from all directions, and in Pakistan, as you say, they're not quite so hidden. It's not an underground church. They're there, and it's obvious, and uh, there is a ruthlessness that comes from these militant groups like ISIS and the Taliban that could well uh, really uh, reflect very badly on the way Christians will be treated. So is there extra vulnerabilities, do you think, that are growing right now in Pakistan? Oh, absolutely. The attack that took place on the 8th of August in the evening uh, was down in, just outside of Quetta, which is, not, which is not up in the northwest, which is where ISIS is, but it's still it's on the southern edge of what we would call the Pashtun lands. So, ISIS, uh, so Quetta is just... It's on the Pakistani side of the border, and you've got Kandahar on the on the Afghan side. Kandahar is Taliban heartland. It's where the Taliban was born and trained and raised. Kandahar is synonymous with with Taliban terror and and Al Qaeda. Can't you just take the freeway across the border into Pakistan? You come to Quetta. And the most recent attack was in Quetta, which is why I believe it was a Pakistani Taliban attack, not an Islamic State attack. And it was in the evening, just after Muslims had left this playground, taken their children home because the call to prayer had gone out. So they'd gone home for the call to prayer and Islamic terrorists on motorbikes drove in and shot, shot bullets into the Christian colonies, this playground outside the Christian colony. And, um, and uh, uh, one uh, man, uh, Wilson Mussey, who's 55, he was killed. He was riddled with bullets. He died the following day. And three teenagers that he was watching over, uh, Bobby Sanaman and, and, and Pobel, were all shot, but not fatally. 
And and uh, one of those young boys told um, told aid to the church in need. He said um, he said people saw them coming. They saw these masked men coming on their motorbikes, and they ducked and they ran for a cover. But my uncle, that's Wilson Nussie, he stood up and called and waved his arms for everyone to to take cover. And so he was riddled with bullets. So he really died. Uh, saving the lives of others, including these three boys. And um, he's actually the brother of a Pakistani parliamentarian that was um, martyred um, some years ago uh, in 20, uh, 2014, who, uh, a parliamentarian in, in, in the Quetta area and an advocate for religious freedom. And he was assassinated outside his home in 2014. And, and locals say they saw masked men watching over the playground the day before. So I am absolutely convinced this was not a spontaneous, random attack by Muslims who said, hey, just, let's just kill some Christians. You know, This was a targeted, uh, probably an assassination of Wilson Massey and just any Christians that happened to be near him at the time. And, and this is why... You know, this is why Pakistani Christians in, in, in the Pashtun lands, so in Western Pakistan and particularly in the Northwest, they are so vulnerable at the moment. They are so exposed. They have two groups that will seek to kill them because, I mean, ISIS and, and the Taliban and ISIS and Al-Qaeda might hate each other and be mortal enemies, but one thing they agree on is that Christians must go. They both want to get rid of Christians. There are no good Islamists in this in this group. And the Christians of Pakistan are exposed and vulnerable and they really need us to pray that God will cover them and shelter them and protect them. Elizabeth, time running out. And there may be all sorts of ways via different groups that support the persecuted church uh, that people can help financially and practically. And so far as your focus, though, you are the one who actually brings us wonderful insights into what's going on. How do we understand what's going on so far as the Christians go in these territories like Afghanistan? And we're talking about Pakistan. So if we're praying specifically, is there is there one or two prayer points that you can say are priorities for listeners today about praying for the circumstances that are happening in these nations of Afghanistan and Pakistan? Well, in my most recent prayer bulletin, which I entitled um, Taliban Terror versus the Redeemer, I, I chose three things we should be praying for. Hide, supply, redeem. So in terms of hide, I suggested we pray that, uh, that God would hide Afghanistan's and Pakistan's gravely imperiled church under the shadow of his wings, Psalm 17, and that the ever-present Holy Spirit would grace Afghanistan's and Pakistan's pastors with wisdom and discernment as they navigate the risk, as they want to feed Christ's sheep as they care for the harassed and helpless, and as they witness as the Spirit leads. And I said we should pray that may those who would harm them simply not see them. And in terms of supply, I said that was hide. In terms of supply, I, I said we should pray that God would supply every need of every Christian mission or ministry group that works to bring light and life, grace and truth to Afghans, be they 
Sunni Pashtuns or Tajiks or Turkmen or Uzbeks or the Persian-speaking Shiite Hazaras, uh, that God, and whether they're even in country or in the diaspora, that God would supply their needs so that he can, uh, can minister to them and that Jehovah Jireh, the God who provides, would provide and that the Good Shepherd would rescue the lost and that the Holy Spirit would bring light and life to multitudes and then redeem. I prayed that the Redeemer would redeem all Taliban terror and use it for good. So to turn it, to take that evil and turn it to good for his good purposes, that is for salvation. So may all Afghans who are suffering hardship today, hardship and fear, may they find Christ and take refuge in him. And I used, I, I cited one of my favorite Bible verses, Isaiah 65 verse 1, where God says, the Redeemer says, I was ready to be sought by those who did not ask for me. I was ready to be found by those who did not seek me. I said, here I am, here I am, to a nation that was not even called by my name. This is the God we worship. We worship a God who has a heart for Pashtuns and Hazaras, and, and he wants to reach into them. He's calling for them, and we need to pray for them and for everyone involved in doing that work. And with a Christian church remnant growing in Afghanistan under those dreadfully harsh conditions, uh, we might expect miracles. Uh, but the way God uses his people around mm. the world, uh, we're not here called to have our heads in the sand. And Elizabeth Kendall, it's in conversations like this that so many listeners become informed as to what's going on. These sorts of things are not reported in mainstream media. And that's why it's so good to connect with Elizabeth Kendall and go to her website, uh, she has a new website. You can sign up for the Religious Liberty Prayer Bulletin. Wondering how to pray and not wanting to pray just shallow prayers? Some deeper things you can understand about the developments that are happening in nations around the world. An opportunity to connect with and support uh, this good work of Elizabeth Kendall. I mentioned that she's the author of two books. I mentioned after Saturday comes Sunday, Understanding the Christian Crisis in the Middle East. Some will be really drawn to wanting to know the underlying factors that make the Middle East such a place of turmoil. There's another book that Elizabeth has written called Turn Back the Battle. Isaiah speaks to Christians today. You'll be able to access those too on Elizabeth's website, Elizabeth Kendall. Dot com. That's Elizabeth with a with a with a, when uh, Elizabeth a with a Z <laughs> and Kendall with only one L. ElizabethKendall.com. Elizabeth, thank you so much for taking some time to share your thoughts and your heart with us today on 2020. And thank you for the opportunity, Neil. Thanks for taking time to listen to this audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. To find out more about us, go to vision.org.au.